0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Amen. All right, so let's jump in. Um, We only read from verse 14, and and there's a reason for that. That's kind of where we will conclude. But in order to get us to where we need to go, we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Um, So the book of Hebrews is filled with complexities that that we don't ultimately have time to discuss, but let me just place us a little bit here in that in the previous chapter, the author of Hebrews goes to great length to sort of show us these examples of of men and women who were faithful to God, right? So he'll list uh, people like Abraham and Noah and Gideon, and, and then he goes on to tell us about these people that whose stories were never recorded, whom, whom the world was not worthy of because they suffered for the, the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus and the glory of God, right? And it's that group of people that are referenced when we read this verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So there's a couple things that I want us to break down just to just to kind of get us through to to what the the broader content of the sermon will be, right? But so it tells us this. The author to Hebrews tells us since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, meaning right, he's he's referencing these people who have gone before us who have. Who have been witnesses to God's great grace and God's great faithfulness to his people over time, right? Since we are surrounded by so great a number of witnesses, let us also, let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely. So, without going into all the depth and the breadth of what is in Hebrews chapter 11, what we can know, if we've, if we've sort of got um, a cursory understanding of the Bible, or maybe we even just know a, a, a few of the main plot points or main stories um, within the Bible, particularly some of the ones that are in the Old Testament that are referenced in Hebrews chapter 11. What the author to Hebrews is encouraging us to do is, is to build upon that witness. He says, look, you've you've got this great witness to God's graciousness and his faithfulness. And he recalls to them stories that they would have known, right? He talks about Abraham and how Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac if that's what God would have had him to do, right? He talks about Noah, Noah's faithfulness in spite of the fact that he was ridiculed for building an ark in the middle of a drought. He says, you have these great witnesses to my grace and to my faithfulness. And he's saying that now the call for us is exactly the same. Let us also, as they did, right? That's essentially what he's saying. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So he's saying, look, you have this great legacy of witness to my grace continue in it, right? We talked about the past couple of sermons how really um, the, the growth and, and sort of explosion of Christianity that so many people feel like is, is unexplainable, um, which apart from the power of God it is, really came down to people just telling someone who told someone who told someone, being faithful to what God had called them to do. That's all that we're being encouraged to do here but he gives us some specifics. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, I don't think we need to go into great lengths to to define those words. But let me just say this. When, When he says the word weight, what he means is any impediment, right? Let us lay aside any impediment, anything that would hold us back from doing what God has called us to do. Let us lay it aside. And then, of course, let us lay aside sin, right? Let us lay aside those acts that are an affront to God. Let us lay aside those acts that are not aligned with the righteousness, not only that God requires, but that He provided in Christ. So He's being comprehensive in what He's telling us to do, right? Let us, lay aside every way, let us lay aside anything, even good things, that would be an impediment to us glorifying the name of Christ, glorifying our God and Father. And let us certainly put aside any act, any sinfulness, that would be unaligned with the righteousness that not only God requires, but that He has provided in Christ. And then by... By grace, he acknowledges the fact that that's difficult when he says that those things cling closely to us. And much of this really should sort of feel like almost a recap of what we've been talking about um, the past couple of weeks. But then what does he tell us to do instead, right? So there's there's a laying off, but then there's also a taking up. He says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so, again, acknowledging the fact that this is this journey of Christian living, that this following the path of Christ, that this living a life of holiness is difficult when he says that we're running a race that's going to require endurance. but that it's a course that has been set for us and that we have an example and that we have someone who has walked it on our behalf and in that we have a great cloud of witnesses who have been shown God's grace as they have stumbled along that same race, that same course set before them. So so Listen. What makes this cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 11, and if, and if you've never read it, read it. I would encourage you to, to go back and read it. But what makes this cloud of witnesses so distinct, so great, not only in number, but in their actual witness, is that they walked in faithfulness to God. Not, not perfectly, right? And that we can go back and we can look at Abraham and we can look at Noah and we can point out flaws. But, the, but the, the overarching narrative of their, of their life was faithfulness to God, a willingness to be set apart, a willingness to listen to what he would have them to do, right? A willingness to endure, that when, when God told Abraham that he would have a child, that through his child and through his children, a great nation would be formed, that even though his wife turned 100 before that became a reality, he was willing to follow and to do what the Lord had asked him to do. Again, not perfectly, but he did it. So what made these, what made these witnesses so great was, was the fact that they were distinct, that they were set apart, that they were, that they were holy. And so what I'm trying to get us to this morning is this. Holiness, right, so being, being like God, Holiness is not just a way that we are witnesses to God's grace and faithfulness, but it is the way. And so here's what I mean by that. Holiness and the mission of God are are integral to one another. And we're going to spend the the, the next 15 minutes or so really, really fleshing that statement out. So if that sounds uh, a little strange, we'll get there. So holiness and the mission of God are mutually dependent upon one another. What made Jesus so famous through the actions of the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 was their holiness, their consecration, their set-apartness, their willingness to be set apart for God. And here's where I think the, the tension or the, or the problem sort of lies for, for us today. And that I think that there are two common, either misconceptions or, or leanings when we talk about holiness and mission. Now, they wouldn't be owned or maybe even stated this way or this clearly, but at, at their essence, I believe they're true. And, and, and so I'm going to start with the one that most likely, if I had to guess, characterizes us here at Sojourn. And, and here's what I would say. we believe we believe that in order to reach the world we have to look as much like the world as possible so instead of being transformed by the renewal of our minds we are being conformed to the ways of the world we do this in the name of mission sometimes genuinely and mistakenly but probably more often as a justification to maintain habits that are enjoyable to us but sinful before god so here's what i mean by that right? I think that, that some of us would say that the mission is so important that our holiness can take a back seat. In other words, I'm going to do as much as I possibly can to look as much like the world as, as I can, to be as much like the world as I can, so that it is almost indes- indeterminable differences, and then at some point, maybe five years down the road, we'll get to talking about Jesus. Like you're just going kind to of, kind of, you're going to Jedi out of nowhere, and, and all of a sudden it's going to be known to everyone around you. So, what we do is we sacrifice holiness for mission, right? We say, in the name of mission, I, holiness is less important. But here's the opposite side of that coin, right? And that's that we sacrifice mission for holiness. And, that, and I think this is some of our understanding of that, that previous point and some of where that comes from is an overreaction to this point, right? Which is this. Some people believe that in order to be holy, we have to cut off contact with the world. So instead of seeking out sinners like we were sought out, we stay sheltered in the confines and comfort of ideological, philosophical, and theological alignment within the church. And we do this in the name of holiness, sometimes genuinely and mistakenly, but probably more often as a justification for not picking up the difficult and uncomfortable cross of mission that is painful for us but glorifying to God. So there's there's two sides of that coin, right? In that some people want to sacrifice holiness for mission and some people want to sacrifice mission for holiness. And yet what I'm trying to get us to and what I think we will see from this text is that there is a, a distinct tension to be held between the two that is necessary for fruitful mission and necessary for godly holiness. So here's a, a, a quick example, and, and then we'll, we'll kind of move on in what I'm trying to get to. We'll take drinking because I think it's a fair, that's a fairly popular thing at this church. <laughs> Everyone's like, not me. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> so, right, we're just going to run through a couple quick questions. One, is, is drinking inherently sinful? No. Can drinking be sinful? Yes, absolutely. Is drinking valuable valuable for mission? It can be. Is drinking damaging to holiness? It can be. So if we're drinking without sin and it's valuable for mission, we can maintain our holiness while being faithful to reaching the lost where they are. But if we're drinking sinfully, it becomes damaging to the mission because we lose our holy witness. So So do you see the middle ground there that's so important to be had? It's the entire conversation of the book of Romans. You should just just read through it. Right? Aren't we... We're we're no longer under the law. We're under grace. So shouldn't we sin more that grace should abound? By no means. So here's a statement that I'm going to make. Um, and I think it's appropriate. Holiness without mission is not holiness. And mission without holiness is not mission. I think that they are that integral, that, that the holiness of God's people is so wrapped up and so important to the mission of God's people that really, apart from one another, neither actually exists. Let me describe what I mean a little bit more. Holiness without mission is ultimately not holy because God's character expresses itself comprehensively in His mission to reach and redeem His people and His world through Christ. I think that's central to who God is. The image of the invisible God is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ came on mission. He was willing, in fact, to lay off every weight, right? The glory that he experienced in the presence of God in heaven, to take upon himself flesh, to empty himself, as Philippians 2 would tell us. He took all of that in the name of mission. God's character, the image of the invisible God expressed through Jesus is one that is characterized by mission. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The ministry of reconciliation that Jesus came to bring. Here's the other side of the coin, right? Mission without holiness is ultimately not mission because God's character is comprehensively distinct from the world as evidenced in Christ. It's impossible to make Jesus known as he is if we, his people, are not like him. God's character is chiefly described as holy from Genesis to Revelation. There was no sin in Jesus. He was holy, righteous, upright, like God in every way. So if Jesus had come and He had experienced unholiness or He had had fallen to temptation, the mission would no longer exist because it would have been rendered incomplete. Christ's holiness was necessary for the mission. So here's what that ultimately means for us. I'm going to read a, a passage of Scripture that I think is typically very popular, especially with those of us who have been dissatisfied with the church at any point in time, which probably most of us in the room have, right? And this is inevitably what happens, right? We go to Acts chapter 2 and we go to verse 42 and and we read this collection of verses. I'm going to read it for us. Um, And we think, that's what I want to be a part of, right? This is what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, those who were being saved. That's a compelling picture of what the church can be, isn't it? Why is it so compelling? It's not just compelling because there were, there were people, thousands of people, being added to their number day by day. Right? It's, it's compelling to us now because of what we see taking place, not just in the fruit of their ministry, but in the actual life of their ministry. But my question is, what, what is it that's leading them to do this? Where is the disconnect? Why is it that they experience this, and, and we so many times feel like we don't? I think my, con- my contention this morning is this that what we are watching take place here is the people of God right empowered by the spirit because this is this is right after Pentecost right the spirit has descended upon the believers that the people of God through the power of the spirit are beginning to be more holy and as they are more set apart and as they are more like Christ what happens <laughs> Rather than hoarding, they share as any has need because God is setting them apart. Rather than feuding based on heritage and culture, they embrace the Jew and the Gentile because Jesus embraces the Jew and the Gentile. Rather than worshiping Caesar who perishes and other gods who are irresponsive, they worship a living God, an incarnate and resurrected God. And then it tells us that they had favor with all people. Listen, they didn't have favor with all people because their message was more palatable, but because the Spirit of God was making them distinct in a way that was compelling. Look, this group of people, there's nothing nothing ultimately special about them in their outward appearance. They're not the movers and shakers in the culture. They're the the cultural bottom of the pit. And yet it tells us that they had favor with all people because they were the meek, because they were the peacemakers, because they were the pure in heart, because they were the poor in spirit. They were those who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. They were those who were persecuted for righteousness' sake. And you know what? Um, Jesus in Matthew tells us what happens with those kind of people. This is, this is what he says, right? Those, those wonderful beatitudes that we're all familiar with, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. Immediately after that, Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The glorious situation that the 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 people in Acts find themselves in, and that that you and I also find ourselves in, and that the people that are listening to Jesus preach in Matthew when he says sort of these these cryptic words, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Right? While that may have been a, a bit more cryptic for them, while that there, there may have been something yet to be revealed in that you and I stand in the same place as those um, who are in Acts chapter two stand. And we can see that, that in Christ we have been given the kingdom of heaven, right? In that our thirst for righteousness' sake has been satisfied in Jesus in that He was the one who was persecuted for righteousness' sake, and He has now extended that righteousness to us. In Christ, we have been comforted as those who mourn, because we no longer need to mourn. You see, in Jesus, all of these things are true of us. We have been set apart to be all of these things. I want to read one, one final uh, r- sort of reference. I know we've jumped around a lot, but I'm going to go to John 17. This is Jesus again speaking. Um, well, actually, he's praying. He's praying right now, and he's, he's actually praying for you. And so uh, let's, let's read what he says. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. See, there's a, there's a key word that I want to zero in uh, on in that particular passage, and it's from verse 19, and, and Jesus says this, For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. See, so why was it important, right? Why was it, why was it important that Jesus walk in obedience, As a man, after taking upon himself flesh, why was it important that he was found without sin? He's telling us right here. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. If we go back to Hebrews chapter 12, it'll explain it quite well for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is sanctified so that we might be, sanct- uh, I'm sorry, Jesus is consecrated so that we might be sanctified in the truth. And so we also are consecrated, made holy, right, set apart that others might be sanctified in the truth. Our holiness and the mission of God are entirely intertwined, entirely necessary for one another in that our holiness serves the mission and that the end of the mission is our holiness. And this is where we'll conclude, and I'm just going to walk us to verse 14, right? Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, did what? Verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus did. That's the point he's making. Skip down to verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So now, because of what Jesus has done, because of the righteousness and the holiness that he has given to us, imputed to us, now we are disciplined not in shame or guilt, but as legitimate sons. In that what the author to Hebrews is telling us right here is that as we are being disciplined, as we are growing in holiness, as we we endure the difficulty of that race, that that is actually proof by which we can see and know our legitimate adoption into the family of God. Verses 11 through 13 read like this. I'm sorry, I'm going to take verse 10 as well. For they disciplined us for a short time, talking about our earthly parents, as it seemed best to them, but he, being God, disciplines for our good that we may, what? Share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So look, as we talk about holiness, and and, and we've talked about it now for, for three weeks, and so this all builds on that, right? But as we as we talk about our holiness, as we talk about striving, running this race that both requires endurance, but, but, but where the course has been set for us, where we have a godly example, where we have so great a cloud of witnesses, where we have all of the self-revelation of God needed to be holy, it's not so that we can earn a place as sons. And it's not so that we can manufacture our own wellness. It's so that we can legitimately be adopted sons and so that we can be actually healed. That in our striving for holiness, that in our laying aside every weight in sin, that we are actually actively being healed. And then verse 14 says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which No one will see the Lord. And here's here's the reality of what the author of the Hebrews is saying We won't see God without holiness, and neither will anyone else in Montrose. We have a holy mission, a distinct, set apart, consecrated mission. Let's ask the Lord for missional holiness meaning a holiness that expresses itself in faithfulness, not only to God's, to God's law and to his way of living, but also to his mission. We have a holy mission to make Jesus known. Let's ask the Lord for a missional holiness to do so. Let's pray together.